You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Nineteen sixty-eight. It was a year of real tragedy, the most divisive year, I believe, in American political history since the Civil War. The revolution was on in America. Social, cultural, moral, campuses were ablaze. The anti-war movement was rising. You had the civil rights movement, as I mentioned, was degenerating in many cases into riots. So all of these things caused more and more Americans to say, it's not turning out well. And something is terribly wrong with our country. Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. 100 American cities went up in flames and smoke and fire and violence and looting and burning. It was horrendous. And that tremendously influenced the politics that year. In early June, Robert Kennedy had been shot in Los Angeles in a hotel kitchen. The nation had been torn apart by a half decade of assassinations and riots. 30,000 Americans were dead in Vietnam. Half a million soldiers were tied down in an endless war. The American people were beginning to say this country is coming apart. The future silent majority was being formed right there in uh, 1968. And it is the story of a man who rose from one of the worst defeats in American political history and the worst occasions and came back from basically a broken career to lead a shattered and ruined party, not only to victory in 1968, but to create a great coalition that succeeded FDR's coalition and dominated the presidency for 20 of the next 24 years. It was an incredible history with an incredible man. I don't care what side of politics you're on. His perseverance, his courage, his ability to get up from defeat again and again and again is just unbelievable. I, Richard Billhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. the political gap. I'm Ryan Wallace. And now we're ending 1967 and heading in to the most tumultuous year in modern American history, 1968. As we left you, President Johnson had gone and met with the troops in Vietnam. He'd flown over there at the end of the year around Christmas time. And all the reports at this point uh, looked positive. The, the, the military was giving you a positive look, um, a feeling that things were beginning to turn our way. And what would happen next would set off uh, a year of unbelievable tumultuousness in the United States. The Tet Offensive was right at the new year, and it was when the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong decided to go on a massive all-out attack uh, on South Vietnam in one of the cities there uh, that was of, of, of a particular importance. 
And the thing that you got to remember is this was a, a, a brilliant tactical move, and it turned into a propaganda home run for them because anyone on the ground in the Vietnam thought the Tet Offensive had been a disaster for North Vietnam and the Viet Cong. Uh, but because they had caught the Americans or the South Vietnamese and the American troops at a time when going into the Tet New Year holiday time period, uh, a lot of the troops were off. It was, it was kind of a holiday. It was a ceasefire. So this was a, a, a breaking of all the rules, you, you name it, to get the drop on the uh, troops so that they could look like they had made these huge advances. But it turns the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite, against the war. And the Tet Offensive and then Walter Cronkite's decision to editorialize, which he clearly says he's doing, which is something that the new media these days need to take a look at, really changes the trajectory of what's happening in the United, in the, inside the United States in domestic politics and puts Lyndon Johnson in an incredibly bad spot. And as you'll see, 1968 is just the unfolding and unraveling of so much. And before you know it, the country is in turmoil. In late January 1968, the people of South Vietnam busily prepare for the traditional holiday of Tet, marking the Lunar New Year. Civilians decorate their shops and homes, and the military looks forward to a brief ceasefire, with many Arvin soldiers taking leave as the country celebrates. Communist insurgents are preparing for something different, however. North Vietnam chooses the ceasefire as the time to launch the general uprising a massive coordinated offensive targeting every major base and urban area in South Vietnam. Viet Cong guerrillas prepare and mobilize. While NVA troops infiltrate the South via the Ho Chi Minh Trail. On January 31st, over 80,000 communist troops attack hamlets, districts and cities across South Vietnam, including Saigon, and the previously untouched imperial capital of Hue. The traditional capital of Vietnam and a symbol of that country's rich cultural heritage, Hue is overrun by this Tet Offensive. Viet Cong and NVA troops pour through the streets arresting Catholics, scholars and other enemies of the revolution who do not flee. By the 1st of February, the entire city, including the venerated Palace of Peace, is firmly in communist hands. Only the American MACV compound to the south of the Perfume River and the Arvin 1st Division headquarters to the north of the Citadel managed to hold out against the fierce NVA attacks. The 26-day battle for Huey was fought street by street house by house, room by room. 216 American troops were killed and another 1,300 wounded. Many people are hurting real bad right now. We lost 2nd platoon. They were wiped out. And part of 1st platoon. They lost a lot of people. 10,000 North Vietnamese and Viet Cong had seized way at the outset of the Tet Offensive. And then you see there's one little tin roof sticking out and the Marines were sent in to claw it back. If there's anything close to hell, it had to be waived. That's the voice of Sergeant Bob Toms, wounded six times, but still alive today. 
In this photo, he's leading an assault on a tower the enemy was using to shoot down on American troops. The night before, he had joined his Marines in prayer. Everybody held hands. This was our prayer. God, we know we're about to see you in person. If we've got to die on this tower, let us die like men and Marines and don't embarrass ourselves or our families or the Marine Corps. Amen. One of the images in this exhibit are the first 12 men that went up the tower. And um, within 30 seconds, five of them were critically injured. John Olson, then a 20-year-old Army photographer, took these extraordinary photos, including this sequence. A wounded Marine is in agony. Wrapped in a blanket, he whispers the Lord's Prayer as his life slips away and another wounded Marine stands guard. Later, a chaplain administers last rites. It was a totally new combat experience for all these men. They'd never been in house-to-house fighting before. Olson's photos are now on exhibit at the museum in Washington, D.C. to mark the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive. If you had to choose the most important event of the Vietnam War, it certainly would be the Tet Offensive. It changed how people looked at the war, and doing so, it changed the war itself. Walter Cronkite, America's most trusted newsman, went to Hue, the longest and bloodiest battle of Tet, heavy, small-armed mortar fires. And came back to tell the public the war could not be won. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. Nothing delivered that message more vividly than Olson's photo of wounded Marines being carried out of Hue on a tank. What I see when I look at that photo today are seven 18, 19, 20-year-old kids badly wounded. It's painful to look at. The shirtless figure is an 18-year-old Marine shot through the chest, a symbol of American innocence shredded by the reality of Vietnam. I remember it well. His name is A.B. Grantham, and he is now 68 years old, having come as close to death as it is possible to come. It was what we call a sucking chest wound. Hit the breastbone, went through the right side, and exited under my shoulder blade. Was it painful? Very much. Very hot. How did they stop the bleeding? The bleeding wasn't the main problem to begin with. It was the breathing. I couldn't breathe because I had a hole in my chest. How close did you come? I don't think it could have got any closer. <laughs> they had zipped me up into a body bag uh, and... I remember somebody saying, this one's not dead yet. And lo and behold, you know, they got me out and I made it. None of the Marines on the tank were identified, and that was fine with Grantham, who didn't want people to know he had been to Helen back. Tried to hide back into society and just fade away, you know, and be like everybody else and have a... A nice normal life, uh, but it didn't didn't last. Uh, the uh, war has a way of rearing its ugly head from time to time. Once you uh, once you learn something, it's hard to unlearn it. And what did you learn? I learned that uh, humanity can be very cruel to each other.
Grantham was diagnosed with severe and chronic PTSD. For 29 of the past 50 years, he has been in therapy and doesn't go anywhere without his service dog, Bo. There was a lot of memories, a lot of nightmares, a lot of uh, uh, resentment to what had happened to us and what, what uh, we were put through. The Vietnam War still rears its ugly head, but Grantham is hiding no longer. That's Dr. Katz. This cat saved my life. Fifty years after Tet, the Marine on the tank says it's time to see that war more clearly. I'm hoping that the public can embrace the war now and they can learn exactly what happened and what went on and that we had many, many, many heroes that didn't come back with us from over there alive. I really believe that we were... uh, helping the, the South Vietnamese uh, prepare the groundwork for democracy. I recognized, as everybody did, that the regimes running uh, South Vietnam at that time were certainly not democratic regimes. But if we were to hold this last piece of land against the encroachment of communism in Southeast Asia, we had to hold it first, hold the territory first, and then hope that the, the democratic government would follow. When the Tet Offensive came, I felt definitely the necessity to go back. How could it be that our we were constantly being promised success, light at the end of the tunnel, boys out of the trenches by Christmas type thing, and here they could mount this tremendous offensive. We were losing the villages that we supposedly pacified. They were bringing out the red flags they kept under the, the their, their mattresses and so forth. Uh, I had to go see why. And... Uh, I came back with the conclusion that I then used on the air with clear definition that it was an editorial, not a not a factual report, but my belief that we had done the best we could. We weren't going to meet success out there. We should talk of peace uh, openly with the North Vietnamese, come to the peace table with open hands, uh, and uh, that we should uh, uh, get out of there admitting that we've done the very best we could. We are closer to victory today is to believe in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance, the military and political analysts are right. In the next few months, we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. Did you ever talk to President Johnson? Yeah, the, the quote is a little muddied in history. Uh, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America, I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the war, something kind. I only think it was a straw on a, uh, a very heavy load he was already carrying. I think he was already coming to that conclusion. It was just that I reinforced his own conclusion. I think he was, by that time, very much upset with what he'd been being told by the military that he felt he had not been leveled with, and he'd gotten some bad advice. After Walter Cronkite, 
uh, had come to the conclusion that it was time to, to negotiate a peace in Vietnam, which really is the icebreaker, uh, because Cronkite was, it'd be hard to, to, to describe the stature he had with the American public as the anchorman of CBS News. He was the most trusted man in America. He is the first. The next big ally to fall when it comes to coming out against the war is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had been President Johnson's ally throughout the civil rights movement. Soldiers will die in Vietnam. Sometime they'll come back home to be buried in Wetumpka, Alabama, and can't even be buried there. It's time to set our own house in order. Those who say to me, stick to civil rights, I have another answer. That is that I fought too long and too hard now against segregated public accommodations to end up segregating my moral concern. I'm not going to do that. Others can do what they want to do. That's their business. Other civil rights leaders, for various reasons, refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration, that's their business. But I'm a tonight that I know that justice is indivisible. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 1968 is also an election year, and the candidate's going to start announcing they're running for office. Eugene McCarthy will be one of them, who will challenge Lyndon Johnson in the New Hampshire primary. One who has backed off at this point is Robert Kennedy, who did not think uh, that Johnson was beatable, who had, and, and therefore did not want to jump in there. He knew the, the, the party hierarchy was not going to be supportive of him getting in. And it didn't help that you know that Lyndon Johnson despised Robert Kennedy, and I, as as has been pointed out, the feeling was mutual. But I think John Kennedy was aware that this would, you know, he would have a very uh, palatable enemy in Lyndon Johnson if he decided to jump in. And I think in the Democratic Party, it looked as though Johnson was unbeatable uh, going into this election. The one man who had emerged, however, starting in 1966 with midterm elections in which uh, Republicans had won in a lot of these places was Vice President Richard Nixon. He had suffered this humiliating defeat in California as governor in 1962 when he ran for governor against Pat Brown, who somehow or another drew the short straw in history. Poor Pat Brown had to run. He was governor for three for two terms, and he he ran against Richard Nixon to get reelected, and, and, and he won. And then he had to turn around and run against Ronald Reagan later and lost. But um, Nixon lost that election, the famous, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But he went out after that and started campaigning for Republicans all across the nation. And in 1968, with the turmoil beginning to happen, he made his move back onto the national stage. I recognize that I must demonstrate demonstrate to the American people, to the Republican Party leaders, to the Republican Party voters at large throughout this country, to independents and to those Democrats who will vote Republican in 1968, that I can win and that I can do the job. I am prepared to meet that challenge. That's why I have decided that 
I will test my ability to win and my ability to cope with the issues in the fires of the primaries and not just in the smoke-filled rooms of Miami. Uh, and I, I suppose this will sound like a statement of some conceit, but as you enter a campaign, you must go in with confidence, and I have great confidence, not cockiness, but confidence. I believe I'm going to win the New Hampshire primary. I believe I will come out the winner of, uh, the decisive winner of the primaries, uh, will go on to win the nomination, and if I do that, I will be the strongest candidate, and I believe I can beat Lyndon Johnson. This was the Pied Piper leading the young people over the edge of the riverbank, we assume, and the word was that neither the Piper nor the children were ever heard from again. Well, there are two or three things wrong with it, I think. First place, the Pied Piper didn't lead the children over the riverbank. He led the rats over it. And it was only because the town had been so badly managed that politicians were at fault and then didn't honor their commitments after he had done that. So what he did with the children was not to lead them to destruction, but into a cave. And it was not to punish them, but to punish the townspeople whom he felt didn't really deserve them. So that's about where we are. I think the Pied Piper will be heard from again, and I think... All right. There you hear Senator Eugene McCarthy on the campaign trail. Here is a senator who is largely seen as not a serious player, but he is very anti the Vietnam War, and he is taking on his president, Lyndon Johnson, in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, and it will shock the world as Walter Cronkite goes through it with you. Mystical poet and senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, chose New Hampshire in the months of February and March to challenge his party's leadership. I'm hopeful that this challenge which I am making, which I hope will be supported by other members of the Senate and other politicians, may alleviate, at least in some degree, this sense of political helplessness and restore to many people a belief in the processes of American politics and of American government. Those nations that we more or less traditionally accepted as being a, a part of the Western world, I think that we would probably be honored by most of them if we were to somehow work out a withdrawal or a disengagement in Vietnam. While Richard Nixon won decisively in the New Hampshire Republican primary, McCarthy, swept along by a new breed of alienated and fighting doves from Harvard, Radcliffe, Dartmouth, and other campuses, almost overran the president, who three and a half years earlier had been elected by the largest majority in history. McCarthy lost, but by only 230 votes, at once convincing two other Democrats that Lyndon Johnson was not a sure thing. Good morning. We are broadcasting this morning the announcement of Democratic Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York that he will be a candidate for the presidency. The senator is doing so in the face of almost solid opposition from the Democratic Party professionals and the state chairman of the Democratic Party in this country, 
Only three state chairmen, New York, Oregon, and Tennessee, have come out in favor of Mr. Kennedy's candidacy. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. I do not run for the presidency merely to oppose any man, but to propose new policies. I run because I am convinced that this country is on a perilous course and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done and I feel that I'm obliged to do all that I can. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old, in this country and around the rest of the world. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair, for reconciliation of men instead of the growing risk of world war. Uh, all I have to, to run on is my commitment uh, and what I thought was my integrity as I committed it to people who were prepared to raise this challenge against the Johnson administration at a time when it seemed to me a lot of other politicians were afraid to come down into the playing field. They were, they were willing to stay up on the, on, the, on the mountains and light uh, signal fires and bonfires and dance in the light of the moon. But none of them came down. I'll tell you, it was a little lonely in New Hampshire. You were there. I walked alone. I, I, they, they weren't even coming in from outside, just throwing a message over the fence, you know. Well, uh, Senator Kennedy says today that he'll come into Wisconsin. Well, I heard him say that, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I, I could have used help in New Hampshire. I, I kind of listened and waited. On March 31st, 1968, President Lyndon Johnson asked for time to address the nation on the latest developments in Vietnam. This had come on the heels of the surprising surge by McCarthy in the New Hampshire primary, and then the announcement of Robert Kennedy, who Johnson loathed, <laughs> and had been a fear that Johnson had had throughout his time that the Kennedy family wanted to reclaim the throne that had been John F. Kennedy's, and that Robert Kennedy was this enemy. And if you look throughout our broadcast, um, there's a paranoia there that goes back to Robert Kennedy's attempt to remove Johnson from the ticket. So Johnson's got a lot of pressure on him at this moment. But he is, and I believe in my own heart, and I think historians believe this, he genuinely wanted to bring this war to an end before he left office. And he was looking for a way to send that message to the North Vietnamese that he was wanted to do this in good faith. And so he speaks to the nation on this evening, March 31st, 1968, with an, another proposal, another attempt to get them to the table, and a humongous surprise that will change everything domestically. Yet I believe that we must always be mindful of this one thing. Whatever the trials and the tests ahead, the ultimate strength of our country and our cause will lie not in powerful weapons or infinite resources or boundless wealth, 
but will lie in the unity of our people. This I believe very deeply. Throughout my entire public career, I have followed the personal philosophy that I am a free man and American, a public servant, and a member of my party. In that order, always and only, for 37 years in the service of our nation, first as a congressman, as a senator, and as vice president, and now as your president, I have put the unity of the people first. I have put it ahead of any divisive partisanship. And in these times, as in times before, it is true that a house divided against itself by the spirit of faction, of party, of region, of religion, of race, is a house that cannot stand. There is division in the American house now. There is divisiveness among us all tonight. And holding the trust that is mine as president of all the people, I cannot disregard the peril to the progress of the American people and the hope and the prospects of peace for all peoples. So I would ask all Americans, whatever their personal interests are concerned, to guard against divisiveness and all of its ugly consequences. Fifty-two months and ten days ago, in a moment of tragedy and trauma, the duties of this office fell upon me. I asked then for your help and God's that we might continue America on its course, binding up our wounds, healing our history, moving forward in new unity to clear the American agenda and to keep the American commitment for all of our people. United, we have kept that commitment. And united, we have enlarged that commitment. And through all time to come, I think America will be a stronger nation, a more just society, a land of greater opportunity and fulfillment because of what we have all done together in these years of unparalleled achievement. Our reward will come in the life of freedom and peace and hope that our children will enjoy through ages ahead. What we won when all of our people united just must not now be lost in suspicion and distrust and selfishness and politics among any of our people. And believing this as I do, I have concluded 
that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. With America's sons in the field far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But let men everywhere know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause, whatever the price, whatever the burden, whatever the sacrifice that duty may require. Thank you for listening. Good night, and God bless all of you. You have just heard the President of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, in an address from his office at the White House. President Johnson spoke for almost 40 minutes to the exact second. The advanced text of his address did not contain those last remarks saying, and I quote from President Johnson, I shall not seek and will not accept the nomination of my party for the presidency. That was not in the advanced text of the speech. Uh, advanced copies of President Johnson's speech were put out about an hour and a half before he spoke. It was known before his speech that he intended to call, as he did, for a limited, uh, limited bombing pause over North Vietnam. The speech uh, is so important that perhaps we ought to, the first thing we should do is review the major points of it, taking them uh, just about in the order the president took them. First, he called for a reduction of air and sea bombardment of North Vietnam, 90% of the country about that will be affected. Only those areas directly adjacent to the so-called demilitarized border zone will continue. My colleague Roger Mudd has been in the CBS studios here in Washington with me. Roger, uh, no question about it, this was a bombshell politically. Well, I, you, you really don't know where to begin. Uh, <laughs> as you said, there was no warning. The announcement that he would not seek another term or accept another term was not in the text. There had been some uh, rumor uh, knocking about uh, the city for perhaps a month when uh, when the political uh, fires began to heat up. But uh, the rumor, the report, the possibility that President Johnson would not seek another term seemed so remote that it was dismissed as uh, wishful thinking on the part of his critics. Well, Roger, I would say not uh, it wasn't wishful thinking or otherwise, I must say that I was one of those who did not believe that the president would in any uh, form or manner pull out of this, uh, this campaign. Well, it seems uh, uh, really so unlike him uh, to give way in the face of adversity. Those who thought he might uh, pull out uh, 
considered that he wanted to retire without uh, a defeat under his belt. And this was uh, taking into account his uh, his drive to win and go down in history as uh, someone who would not suffer the ignominy of being beaten at the polls, especially uh, at the election, especially by someone like Robert Kennedy or Gene McCarthy. This is obviously the this is obviously the ultimate sacrifice on the part of President Johnson. Roger, I wonder if we might uh, now replay through videotape that section of President Johnson's speech, that stunning moment uh, when he said that he would not run. Here by videotape replay, uh, one of those memorable moment, moments, historic moments in American political history. As you were saying, Roger, just before we replayed that videotape, uh, it has uh, what it says is that President Johnson is willing to pay the ultimate price to make the ultimate sacrifice for peace in Southeast Asia. Well, you know, just watching that uh, videotape replay, your heart begins to palpitate again to sit there and, and watch this performance because uh, it was so unexpected, so really unlike him. And as <clears throat> we were saying before we saw him again, it is the ultimate political, personal sacrifice. The immediate question that's raised is, with President Johnson now a lame duck president, what uh, effect uh, his offer to suspend the bombing and uh, reactivate uh, Harriman and Thompson in the Geneva context, what effect that will have on, on Hanoi? Would the North Vietnamese government now prefer to wait and see who the new nominee of the Democratic Party, Republican Party, and what the polls are, or what the election results are before they begin to deal with the American government? This is an immediate problem that uh, might well affect the uh, the. Uh, efficacy of uh, the president's offer. The other question that immediately comes up is, uh, is what happens to domestic politics? The president now will not go into uh, uh, any primary campaigns. He is out of it altogether. This leaves the Democratic nomination up to Robert Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy. Uh, it leaves the Republican nomination up for Richard Nixon. The president is no longer a factor. It, it, it's what I'd rather do, Dan, is go home and come back tomorrow morning and begin to talk about it. Well, I think we all would rather. It, it is a, a stunning moment, and if, for those of you in the audience who may be saying, well, those two fellows are having a hard time coming up with something to say, uh, that's the truth of the matter, because it did come as a distinct surprise. But, Roger, I would take issue with a couple of things that you said, just for the sake of discussing it. And it seems to me that this turns the whole political basket upside down. <laughs> Hi, this is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show.
knowing the hard realities of the office, yet also knowing the potential for good which lies within it. I shall seek the nomination of the Democratic Party. voted for me as vice president had every right to expect a full four-year service in that office. Thus, in the weeks ahead, I want you to know that I shall place high priority upon that call to service, and I shall continue to fulfill to the best of my abilities the duties of my office and the responsibilities that have been placed upon me. I shall, as the President has, observe the absolute priority of peace over politics. I shall do my utmost to contribute to a broad, reasoned national dialogue devoted not to personalities, but to issues which may at once benefit, educate, and inform both the American people and the Democratic Party. For 1968, this year, is not the year for frenzied or inflammatory rhetoric, nor... Nor is it the year for searching out and seeking and finding scapegoats for our problems. I submit that 1968 is the year for common sense to the American people. Now, the field is set for a democratic battle between the upstart McCarthy sort of the darling of the uh, liberal establishment, anti-war wing, uh, and young people about Robert Kennedy, and of course the establishment of the Democratic Party, Hubert Humphrey, and what will be uh, an, an, an unbelievable Democratic year uh, amongst the Democratic frontrunners for president. Now the Republicans have got some stuff going on on their end too. you got Richard Nixon in the race, uh, Romney, George Romney, who was the governor of Michigan, will will step up, and Nelson Rockefeller all are involved in this thing. But Nixon is the only one on the Republican side who 
is an, has the establishment wing, part of the party with him, has gone out into the field and helped all these other candidates uh, for a number of years, really from the time he lost in 62, including staying loyal to Barry Goldwater, who got slaughtered wholesale in 1964. Nixon actually went out and worked probably harder for the Goldwater ticket than Goldwater did, who was a notoriously lazy senator. And uh, Goldwater repaid him later, as you're going to see, by turning on him during Watergate. But anyway, I digress. Um, Nixon is the clear front runner, and he will stay there. But this is going to be a battle between Humphrey, McCarthy, and Kennedy. But 1968 is a year of such unparalleled tra- uh, tr- just tragedy that you just couldn't even get your head above water before one tragedy followed another. And the war was already bad enough. Uh, but there had been an ongoing struggle in this country for civil rights. And one man, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had been that symbol of that civil rights struggle. And he had been a man who had preached nonviolence and, and standing up for your rights. And, and it had been really that person who had, had put that good face on this movement that had allowed it to, to become a success. And when he felt that the war was wrong, he stood up for that too. And, uh, and what would happen next, which set off riots across the country. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. That happened at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The nation was shocked. President Johnson expressed horror and then postponed his trip to Hawaii until tomorrow. We're going to go to Memphis now and talk to ABC's Tom Gerald, who is on the scene. Here in Memphis, of course, a great deal of shock, a great deal of confusion, and a great deal of uh, uh, some violence. I can't say a great deal because I don't really know. I do know that uh, police are very concerned that the fire department are, is moving uh, units around the streets and that uh, there is some rock throwing and some fires reported and some shooting. The full extent of, at, at this time from this vantage point can't be uh, assessed. Uh, the Full curfew has been imposed on the streets of Memphis. Everyone except emergency vehicles uh, are being cleared from the streets. The National Guard, which had been on duty here uh, up until late last night, they have been recalled to duty and uh, are being put on the streets of Memphis right away. Of course, a great deal of confusion and chaos uh, resulting from the announcement here that Dr. King had died. It was a very great shock for something like this to happen. The uh, shooting occurred at the Lorraine Motel. It was a favorite place for civil rights leaders and for Negro businessmen to stay uh, here in Memphis. I believe we have some film now, Bob, if we can take a look at that. This is where the shooting occurred tonight, where Dr. King was killed. The Lorraine Motel is a favorite place for Negro leaders to stay while in Memphis. It's a very nice new modern motel. He was on the second floor balcony, out, standing exactly where these two officers are, talking with some of his aides at the time of the shooting. The uh, 
scene immediately became confused. Officers ran forward and, and uh, attempted to secure the area. The shot apparently came from an apartment building directly across the street. The uh, members of Dr. King's staff were there discussing a mass rally, which was planned for tonight. They said that uh, suddenly there was a sound that sounded faintly like a firecracker or something, and, and uh, he was talking about that he was the shot. Musical program for tonight's uh, mass rally. Yeah, yeah. And he had asked you to play a special tune. Yes, yeah. Uh -huh. Did he say anything after he was shot? Could you tell how seriously he was wounded? He just said, oh, and it knocked him back, you know, off his feet. After that, was anything said at all? Nothing but oh, and uh, we, we all, and Reverend Jackson, he yelled back at Dr. King. We all hollered, everybody hollered, after the shooting, you know. I was standing kind of sideways. I really didn't have my back to the, where the shot came from. And when I turned all around, we saw the sheriff or the police up on the hill up there. That was the uh, musical director for Dr. King's group, Ben Branch. He was standing alongside Dr. King uh, when the shot came that, that killed uh, Dr. King. In fact, Dr. King was discussing tonight's musical program with Ben Branch at the very moment when the shot was fired. The shot, as I say, apparently came from a, an apartment building which uh, had a number of floors and overlooked the motel. It was a very clear shot uh, to the place where Dr. King was standing on the balcony discussing the situation uh, with his aides. Uh, the police here in Memphis immediately issued a bulletin for a young white man dressed in dark clothes who dashed out of that building across the street. Uh, he dropped a Browning automatic rifle, which was fitted with a scope on the sidewalk, and then he fled. Uh, we don't have any late information from police headquarters here in Memphis because uh, communications channels at the moment are completely clogged with emergency calls. We don't know if anyone has been apprehended, although we understand that some suspects may be being questioned uh, at police headquarters. So the situation here in Memphis uh, is that a complete shock. Uh, the community is in a uh, state of confusion at the moment. Uh, telephone lines, except for emergency calls, uh, are not being handled. Emergency calls only are being handled. And the uh, curfew, which uh, has been reimposed, is a full curfew, everyone off the streets except emergency vehicles. And the National Guard has been called back out uh, in an effort to maintain law and order. This is Tom Gerald in Memphis. Now back to Bob Young in New York. Thank you, Tom. Joining me here in New York is Peter Jennings, who's uh, been on the road around the country, has seen uh, some of the civil rights uh, happenings, and uh, has met Dr. King, and as I have. Um, Peter, do you have any uh, immediate thoughts about what this assassination, uh, what the reactions may be around the country to it? I know this is highly speculative, but it's... Yeah, I, I, I suppose the first concern, Bob, that everybody has, and it's obviously the one that Governor Buford Ellington has, and the people of Memphis have, and the people of Harlem have and other major Negro areas in the cities around the country is the, is the outbreak of violence. I was sitting with a friend of mine tonight um, who's been very involved in thinking and uh, believing in civil rights and asked what his reaction was and uh, would there be violence? And he said no, he didn't think so, that uh, King had created such a spirit, uh, that this would not create a mass kind of violence like Malcolm X did. I think it uh, bodes some waiting, unfortunately, in New York's Harlem. It's raining tonight. Weather has a great deal to do with violence, as I'm sure that both you and I know, both, uh, both in this country as indeed it does in some of the Latin countries, which 
where we have both served. You know, it's a great, Bob, there's a great radio station uh, in New York here, uh, WBAI or the call letters, I think, which is a, essentially a Harlem-oriented radio station. And on past occasions when things have got, you know, touchy in that particular area, WBAI has done a great deal to keep the community knit together and calm down. I was trying to get them on the radio tonight and uh, find out if they were keeping things cool. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Russ Hodge in Memphis, Tennessee, Dan Rather in New York, Bernard Kalb in Saigon, Marvin Kalb in Wellington, New Zealand, and Bert Quint in Quezon, South Vietnam. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led by Dr. King erupted in violence. Governor Buford Ellington has called out 4,000 National Guardsmen, and police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. Men, women, and children poured into the streets. They appeared dazed. Many were crying. A young Negro said, Dr. King didn't really have to go back to Memphis. Maybe he wanted to prove something. I have some very sad news for all of you. And I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King 
dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and distrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. A favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. And it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With
what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people thank you very much Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>